Well, if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me today to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, as we're going through a section of Scripture that is a challenge to many theologically and pastorally as well. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading at verse 4 for the sake of context and verse through verse 12, but our emphasis really will begin at verse 7 and through 9. That will be the primary emphasis today. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we thank you for your word, and we need help to preach and to listen. Lord, let us all, preacher and congregation alike, sit under this word. May your spirit help and bless, encourage, strengthen, fortify our love and our faith and our zeal for Jesus. May we love each other. May, Lord, nothing hinder the receiving of this word. Lord, may we put away all sin and malice and greed and envy and covetousness and murder and adultery and all the rest. May we, O God, uh, seek to receive this, not as the word of men alone, but the word of God. And so may we uh, hear the word and tremble at it, for you have said through Isaiah, to this man I will look who hears my word and trembles. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us all sobriety but also joy. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now verse 7, where we'll focus much of our time tonight, today. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Amen. Now, we have been talking about how this is a challenging passage for us because it leaves questions in the minds of many as to whether a Christian can fall away from the grace of God. Is it possible to lose your salvation? There are denominations out there that do believe it is uh, possible for somebody uh, who is a genuine Christian to fall away. Now, as I have said, I think over the last couple Sundays, that is not our view here at this church. I want you to hear that up front in the introduction of today that What we believe is that if one is truly born of the Spirit, born from above, 
by the power of God has been raised to newness of life, it is not possible for that life to cease within that person. That is, that which God has begun in the work of a believer will be completed until the day of redemption. That is, that which God has started, he will complete. He will finish. He is not an 80 percenter. He will see to it that God, who has raised you from the dead and given you new life from above, he will also see to it that you are glorified. If you will, look at Romans chapter 8 real quickly with me here, because I want you to see in another context uh, what we are talking about in the book of Hebrews. Romans chapter 8, this is probably one of the more famous chapters in the New Testament. But look at Romans chapter 8, and starting at verse 28, I want to just put a tent peg here theologically in these verses in your mind as we look at the warning, the pastoral warning that's coming to us in Hebrews. So you see in Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Now, why does everything work together for good to those who love God? Because God is going to see to it that everything in your life, whether it's good or bad, it's going to lead to your glorification because he's done a good work in you. So if you love God, you do so because the Spirit of God dwells within you. You love God because He first loved you and has given you new life. So he says, We know, therefore, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And then notice this, what we call the golden chain of salvation. Verse 29, For those whom He foreknew, or you could understand that as foreloved, Those whom God has loved from eternity past, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, what? He also glorified. Notice there what the Apostle Paul is saying. That God who foreloved you in eternity past, who predestined you to eternal life, he is not going to fail you. He will call you effectually by his spirit. He will justify you when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That is, he'll declare you righteous in his sight, forgiving you of his sins, imputing righteousness to you. And that he will what? He will also glorify you. Now you could insert in between justification and glorification, sanctification. But the point is that God is the beginning and the end of our salvation. God begins it and he ends it here. So having said that, how do we understand this pastoral warning that the author of Hebrews is giving us? Because it seems like he's saying it's possible to receive the Spirit and yet not to be truly a Christian that it's possible to taste of the powers of the age to come and yet fall short of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the short answer is this, that what the author of Hebrews is speaking of is that it is possible for some to experience some influences of the Spirit of God through the preaching of the Word, yet they come short of true saving faith 
and they come short of true repentance. That is, that for a season, they seem to be looking like Christians, but over time show themselves not to be genuine Christians. The point is this, that a true Christian can never lose their salvation. But it is possible for some to give a semblance of appearance of faith, but yet not have been really born again. And therefore, we remember the words of Jesus and of John the Baptist, that you must be born again of the Spirit of God. So that it is possible uh, for some to fall away, but those who do fall away have never been surely Christians. Now, why then does the author of Hebrews give us this warning? Well, I think he does so not because he's trying to shake the assurance of believers. I mean, after all, we're going to see here that it's just the opposite. He wants you to have true assurance here. He he exhorts us here. Look at verse 11 in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize what? The full assurance of hope until the end. So he's not trying to break a bruised reed here. He's not trying to put out a smoldering wick. He's not trying to shake poor believers who are truly savingly hoping in Jesus Christ but lack assurance of faith. But he is trying to warn us against presumption. He is pastorally, and this is good pastoral wisdom here, he is pastorally trying to remind them and us that we need to be careful that we don't presume and that we live any way we please, saying, well, I'm saved and I can't lose my salvation and therefore we come to this wrong deduction. I can do whatever I want to do. I don't have to take the commandments as commandments. They're suggestions to me. And if I want to do something other, I can do something other. The author here, I think, is warning us against that. We, we, we want to have assurance. We want Christians to have assurance of, of, of their faith. Now, listen, assurance probably is not best found by trying to study the subject of assurance. Um, assurance is best realized by what? Going to Jesus again and again and again. I say this as somebody who lacked assurance for probably the first couple years of his Christian life. Because I always wondered, well, did I do this in my own strength? Did I walk down the aisle in my own strength? I remember the counselor afterward at the church, you know, would sit down with you and say, well, now if you have you know, prayed this prayer, you are now truly a Christian. He was trying to give me assurance. But I still struggled with how do I know whether I did this in my own strength or whether this is the work of God in me. And uh, I don't know that I have a silver bullet for you. I can't tell you that it was this one thing that did the trick for me that brought me out of a state of uneasiness into a state of assurance. Other than... It was simply by being a member of the local church and putting yourself week in and week out under the word of God so that the ministry of the word brought me at some point to where I wasn't struggling so much anymore with that sense of assurance. 
So the author here is warning us, however, about the other problem. And the other problem is presumption. And there's a lot of that in the South. You've heard me say that over the last couple weeks. There's a lot of presumption in the Bible Belt that you are safe and secure. And there are a lot of people who are saying, you know, that they are Christian. If you went around, you know, the shopping center and did the man on the street, man on the aisle, woman on the aisle interview at Publix and asked them, you know, are you a Christian? Why do you say you're a Christian, etc.? Uh, we would have here in LaGrange an overwhelming number of people who would say, yes, I am a Christian. The problem is, is that some of them are not bearing fruit. They, they believe that they are Christian because they were born one. They were born an American. They were born in the South. They may have been going to church all their life. They may know a good bit even of the scriptures, but they have not been truly born again because if they were really born again, they would put away the pornography. If they were really born again, they would love their wife. If they were really born again, they wouldn't be cheating at work. If they were really born again, they would be keeping the Sabbath day holy. If they were really born again, they would have no other gods. They think they are safe, but they do not possess the fruit so what we see is in verses 7 through 9 is the author of Hebrews is going to give us an illustration and it's going to ask the question, are you bearing fruit for God? Are you bearing fruit that says you're a Christian? Or are you saying you're a Christian with the lack of evidence? So let's look at this in three parts. First of all, in verse 7, we see this illustration of rain and seed leading to blessing. Rain and seed leading to blessing in verse 7. Secondly, we see, however, there is a ground that is filled with thorns and thistles, which is worthless. That's point number two in verse 8. And then point number three, here again, the pastor comes along. He knows that he has shaken some out there in the congregation. Now he knows that his, his weak members of his flock are, are now worried. And so he says in a, a word of comfort in verse 9 that he's convinced of better things for you. So we're going to look at the, the, one, the field that is blessed, the field that is cursed, and then the exhortation here that he is convinced of better things for this church. So let's look at verse 7 now here again. Here we're dealing with these who have tasted of the powers of the age to come. They have fallen away. They're like Judas. They're like Demas. Um, they're like others who, who have had some dealings with the things of God, but they have fallen away, and they are nowhere to be found any longer. Now, we were talking about uh, we need to be careful with this because we don't, we can't, we need to be careful because we cannot judge the heart. We don't know. It may be that they have sinned uh, against God to the degree that they have uh, blasphemed the Spirit of God and therefore repentance is impossible for them. It's not, doesn't mean that God doesn't want them to repent, but it means that they have placed themselves 
to the point where they no longer want to repent. And, but then there are others, like Luke 15, where we see they're like the prodigal son. And, and that's why we have to be careful, because in any one given moment in history, you don't know whether you're dealing with a situation, as I said last week, with a situation like Judas or a situation like Peter. And so it really means that we have to kind of wait and see. And that's why if you've got family or friends or neighbors that you're praying for, to keep praying for them. I mean, unless God just clearly makes it clear. Um, I think I have seen where some have crossed the line. Where, you know, they are now, once I, I know of a man who openly preached the gospel. He was a minister of the gospel. And today he actually argues against the gospel explicitly online. He argues against he, he thinks it's, it is silly that uh, God would kill his son, and, and uh, he, he despises that doctrine now. Um, I, you know, I'm willing to be surprised in the day of judgment, uh, happily, if, if he can still be converted, but I'm doubtful that, that such a person uh, could truly be um, born again um, and, and, and saved, uh, given where he was and the privileges that he had as a minister of the gospel, and now that he's arguing against it. But for others, we don't know. Uh, we, we can have young people who grow up in the church, and, and they you know, run wild for a season, and then what happens? They are convinced and convicted that what they have been doing is wrong, it's evil, they're, they're looking at their life, they see it's a mess, they see that they're starving, that they're feeding pigs, that they're... Uh, the servants in the father's house have it way better than they are experiencing, and they say to themselves, well, let, I need to go back home. Now, even then, the prodigal still didn't go home the way he should have because he was still saying, take me as one of your hired servants. So he still didn't know the gospel, but he was heading in the right way. And we're not going to get in the way of those who are heading in the right way, right? We're going to you know, bring them to that point. Well, we're glad you're back. But here are the terms. The terms are that you believe on Christ for salvation, not that you try to be a better person than you used to be. Let's look at the illustration, verse 7 here. So in verse 7 and 8, the author of Hebrews is trying to explain to us what he has stated theologically in verses 4 through 6. He is trying to make it simple and plain what he was theologically explaining in the previous verses. So what's the illustration? Well, look at verse 7. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. So here is a field that is experiencing blessing from God. There's a farmer, farmer who's tilling the ground. He's plowing up the ground. He's, he's working the ground. And... He is obviously he has put seed in the ground, and the seed has been watered from God's blessing of rain. So the, the, the rain comes down, and we've had a lot of rain this year. We're thankful for God for that. Um, don't complain about rain, okay? Too many people in this culture complain about rain. Stop. Stop it. Rain is a gift from God. Uh, rain is a good thing, as they say in the country music business. 
For ground, thank you, somebody understood that. (laughs) For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, brings forth vegetation. Notice that it's useful, vegetation useful for those whose sake they have tilled it. So obviously here it is bringing forth something that the farmer wanted here. Now what is going on here? Well, what is the rain? And and the rain here, uh, John Owen says, is really compared to the work of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who is blessing the seed which has been sown. And we know from Jesus' parables that the seed is often compared to the Word of God, that the sower went out and scattered the seed, much like an evangelist or a missionary goes out and he preaches the Word and he sows the seed. And, but the seed needs the water of the rain if it's going to bear into good fruit. If it's going to produce the wheat or the corn or whatever we're growing, it's going to need the blessing of God upon it in order for it to germinate and bring forth fruit. Now, what does this mean? One of the things it means, first of all, is it is a great blessing when the Spirit of God meets with the preaching of God's Word. The good news is is that God is often pleased to use His Word for blessing. In fact, we have the promise from the Bible that the Word of God will not return void. Wherever the Word goes, wherever the Word is preached, God will bless that Word and use that Word to accomplish His purposes. You know, the purposes of God's election and reprobation are being worked out through the preaching of the word. God, What God has decreed in eternity past, he's working out right now in 2023 through the preaching of the word all over the world. Uh, and this is why you and I should labor for our missionaries in prayer. Paul said, pray for my work. Pray for my preaching. God has opened a door for an effective service. Pray that the Spirit would reign. That's what you're praying for eventually, or essentially, is you're praying for God to reign in the preaching of the Word, that the Spirit would apply the Word so that people would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, another thing that I want you to see is it is a great blessing to live in a community that has the preached Word in it. It is a tremendous blessing from God for you and for me to live in a culture where we could hear the word and where we hear it faithfully preached because there are many parts of the world, boys and girls, where there's no rain. There's, there are many parts of the world still today that are like a desert spiritually. They don't know Jesus Christ. There's no Bible being opened on a weekly basis. And those villages and those communities and those large cities, huge cities, sometimes have no preaching. And it is compared to a drought. It's like living in a desert. Uh, There's so little word. And so I say this that you would... uh, Work up a grateful heart to God for where you live and and how God has providentially ordered your life, that you should be able, some of you from the time you were born, hear the word of God. What it also means by way of application is this. We need to remember that we need more laborers. 
if there's rain but no seed, <laughs> nothing's going to happen. That's why the Apostle Paul said what he said in, in Romans chapter 10. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. We need to watch out that we don't become hyper-Calvinists. I'm a Calvinist. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I'm an Augustinian. I believe in God's decrees of election and predestination. I believe everything that happens comes by way of the sovereign plan of God. But that doesn't mean, as my uh, former uh, professor, Dr. Roger Nicole, said, it doesn't mean your Calvinism is a pillow, pillow of laziness, he said. That we, because we believe in a sovereign God, we work and we pray all the more. Look at uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's the promise of the gospel. If you will believe on Jesus Christ and that God raised him from the dead, the Bible promises that you will have eternal life. If you will confess that with your mouth and believe on it in your heart, you have the promise of eternal life. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. But now look at verse 14. But Paul raises something interesting. He doesn't say, and God is sovereign, and he'll save whoever he wants, and so just take it easy. What does he say in verse 14? He says, how then will they, that is the unbelievers, how will they call on him? That is, how, how are they going to confess with their mouth that Jesus is raised from the dead if they have never believed on him? And how are they going to believe on him if they've never heard about him? And how are they going to hear about him if a preacher is not sent? Do you see what the argument that Paul is making here? is that God who has ordained the end, that is, the God who has ordained the harvest, if you will, to use the language of Hebrews, ordains the means. We need sowers of the seed and we need the blessing of the Spirit of God. Let me say to any of you young people, if you are wondering what God might have in store for you, that you might consider a vocation of ministry, of missions maybe. Um, we're not all called to be missionaries. We can't. But maybe God will call some of you to do just uh, that. We need uh, workers to go out. We need more churches to be planted. Uh, we need more Bible studies. We need more missionaries on, on the field. And we need the Spirit of God to go with them. We need people who are laboring in their prayer closets, on their knees, praying for the Spirit of God uh, to work with our missionaries there. So there is the first field that we see in verse 7. It is a field that has rain, it has seed, and it leads to blessing. But then he warns us illustratively in verse 8 as well. He says in verse 8, Secondly, but if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed. 
and it ends up being burned. So here's another field. This field has rain on it too, of sorts, enough to bring up something, but there's no seed. And here is the warning. The warning is that, that people have been under the blessing of the Spirit, but what? They're not producing fruit. This is the presumption here we were talking about. And this is, this is what I fear is so common in the United States is that we have a high percentage of people professing Christianity, professing to be Christians, but we do not see the same level of fruitfulness. And this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to warn us of. We need to be careful. A bare profession is not the same thing as saving faith. Demons can confess that they believe in God. Demons can confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, we who are elders, we need to think about that when we do interviews. Uh, that that, that it, it, it isn't enough to know the facts. We need to see, is there fruit? Is this profession met with repentance and, and fruit in their life? So we see here that in this second field, there is but thorns, a thorn and a thistle. A thistle is kind of a weed, uh, boys and girls, it has a, maybe a little pretty flower on the top and it often has company with really sharp uh, thorns in it. And uh, be careful, you know, when you try to pull it up. These thorns and these thistles can feed nobody. Uh, it, it, is, it is barren. It is something that will not sustain life. It is worthless. It is close to being cursed. Uh, and so he says it ends up being burned. Jesus warned of this as well. <clears throat> Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, warned that, that if we did not have fruit, um, then you, know, you will know them by their fruit, he said. And if there is no fruit, <clears throat> then they could be a wolf. Jesus warns us. Jesus also tells us in other places that there, there was a seed that was scattered and some came up and uh, it bore fruit, but there were others that came up temporarily, but they didn't have. They didn't have the root or they were put in hard soil or they got choked out by the thorns and thistles and they were short of true saving faith here. We are, we are to take care uh, Paul says in Galatians, uh, ye who stand, take heed, lest, what? You fall. Pride goeth before the fall. We need to be careful that we do not presume on the grace of God that leads us to a point where we are not seeking evangelical obedience. And I think obedience is a word that a lot of churches are afraid to use because they are afraid that people are going to think they're preaching works righteousness. And I want you to be clear, I'm not preaching works righteousness here. Let me make it absolutely clear that you cannot be saved by the works of the law. Okay, You cannot. The law and your sinful nature, when meeting together, you cannot produce works that will justify you. Only the perfect work of Jesus Christ can justify you. Only the perfect work of Jesus Christ will gain you access to God. 
the Father. But having said that, Jesus says, if you love me, that is, if you really believe on me, if you really trust in me, you will what? You will obey me. You will, you will love my commandments. Your, the law of God will be your delight. And that's where I think many uh, fall short. Uh, they do not believe that they need to obey God. That, that obedience is optional. Now, we went through this controversy several decades ago. You guys who probably about my age, you may remember when you were in college or shortly after college, we had this great controversy, you know, called the Lordship Salvation Controversy. And can you, can you, can you say the sinner's prayer and bear no fruit and be in heaven if you should die that night? And there were some people who were saying yes, but uh, John MacArthur and, and others, Sproul and others, thankfully, were, were saying no. You, can't, you cannot merely confess Jesus is Lord of your life and, and not have him as Lord of your life. That is, you can't take Jesus as your Savior and deny him as your Lord. If Jesus is really Savior and Lord for you, you then that will evidence itself in a changed life. Now, it's not a perfect life. We're not saying we believe in perfection on this side of glory for the Christian. Every day, you and I are going to sin. Every day, you and I are going to say things, do things, think things that are wrong and evil and sinful, and we have to confess those on a regular basis to God. <clears throat> but there should be some kind of growth in grace. There should be this transformation that takes place that is evident. Um, and that should, that should be seen by others so that they glorify your Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven is not glorified if people see our lives and they don't see anything different. An unbeliever has the right to expect something different about you as a Christian. And if there is no evidence of that, then one must go back to the source and say, well, is there a problem with the faith? Because a, a genuine faith will produce fruit. But the ground that brings up thorns and thistles is good for nothing. Jesus warns us that uh, the, the trees that bear no fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You remember the parable where Jesus, he goes to Jerusalem and he sees the fig tree. And, you know, the fig tree has no fruit on it and, and he curses the fig tree. Some say that that was a, a picture of Jerusalem. You know, as Jesus was going from Bethany to Jerusalem, that's where he met the fig tree, and the fig tree is kind of a parable of, of the spiritual state of Jerusalem. Because Jesus gives us another parable of the fig tree that isn't bearing fruit, and the owner says, cut it down. And, and the uh, foreman says, well, wait, give me, give me three years. Let me, let me, you know, work around it and, and prune it and put, give it some fertilizer, some water, and let's see if it bears fruit. And, so the guy says, okay, but if not, you know, cut it down. And, and some, again, look at that as Jesus' three years of ministry publicly uh, to the people of God. And yet many of them still do not believe in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what came of Jerusalem? Well, the judgment came. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24 that because that they were so barren spiritually, there was a lack of evidence of true faith in the community, even though they had the... the the reputation of being a great religious people. 
They were the Bible belt of the day. But there was no fruit, and, and God ultimately brought a destruction on Jerusalem. He, he raised up a general called Titus. And the Romans came and they destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, just as Jesus had forewarned them that he would. Your house has been left to you desolate, Jesus said. So we need to listen to this pastoral warning. As I said at the beginning, I am not trying to shake those of you who are genuine believers into worrying that you are outside the kingdom of God today. But I am saying pastorally, there is a reason all of us need to take heed. There is a good reason all of us should ask the question, am I a Christian? Am I bearing fruit? Is my life showing a consistency? Um, are there things I need to make amends for? Uh, do I need to change things in my life to have a more consistent testimony? All of these things should be looked at here. Let's look at the final part here in verse 9 and close. <clears throat> here again, pastorally, the author of Hebrews is warning us against presumption. But he's not leaving them in a state of despair. He is saying, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. That is what I think the author of Hebrews is saying is he's saying here, he is persuaded that this congregation of Hebraic Christians are true believers in Jesus Christ. And the things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking of this way. Let me say, we believe that of you too here, okay? Um, <laughs> we, we don't want to get to a place of such introspection where 80% of you won't come to the Lord's table because, and, and there are congregations. I once talked to a pastor. He, I, he pleaded so strongly with members of the church to come to the Lord's table that I actually wrote him. And, and I said, do you have a problem with you know, assurance in, in your tradition to the point where you have to you know, really urge people to come? I said, that's not a problem here in the South. <laughs> if anything, you have to warn them, there are some of you who better stay away <laughs> from this table. Um, and, and in fact, yes, and, and it was a Dutch Reformed tradition, and yes, and they said that uh, that was a problem. People who, you know, you look at their life and you think, surely they're a Christian, but um, there, there's such an introspection there that I think is unhealthy. And I remember my mentor, Larry Miniger, you know, telling us when, when I was a seminary student and I was going to Lake Sherwood OPC Church and he would always tell us, you know, you, you look at yourself, but then you, you always, you don't stay looking at yourself. That will lead to despair. You always go back to Christ. You always go back and look at the cross. What's the point of the cross? The point of the cross is for people like me. It's for people who are sinners, people who are terrible, people who are ashamed of things they've said and done in their past. It's for people like you and me. Um, we always go from ourselves and examining ourselves back to the, the cross of Jesus Christ. That is why the author can have this confidence. He's convinced of better things concerning them. He is convinced that they do have the fruit of the Spirit in their life. They need not fall into despondency. Uh, they need not get to the point. And, and some of you, you know, you can fall into that. I know some of you, you find the Puritans. Listen, I've been there. 
You, you, you take up the Puritans, you start reading these Puritan books, and I know what happens. You begin to think, there's no way I'm a Christian. Pastor, I'm not a Christian. And, um, and, and it, the point is probably, yes, you probably are a Christian. Let me say that. Um, it's just that you've never had preaching to that degree uh, that made you examine yourself to, to see that you're a sinner. One of the things the Puritans are very good at, maybe too good at, was what they call law work, where they take you and they run you through the, the commandments of God. And the reason they do that is not so that they leave you in despair. They only want you to despair of yourself so that you, you throw yourself entirely on Christ. And that's why some of you, when you start taking up these little Puritan paperbacks and you start reading them and you, you get so discouraged, well, it's simply just, you, you've probably never been forced to examine yourself to the degree that the Puritans do it. Now, there is some introspection, in, I think, in more in the New England Puritans that I'm not crazy about. Um, and we can talk about that later. But, you know, for the most part, I think the, the, the um, Puritans are, are a good thing. Um, even though our culture says that they're not. Um, you know, even some Christians, they think the Puritans are legalistic. I had to talk to somebody last night. They don't go to church here. They live on the other end of the country, up north. And, uh, you know, they, they thought that the Puritans were legalistic. And I said, no, 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 no. You know, they, this is not legalism. They're, they're, they are applying the law to you, but not so that you trust in the law for your salvation. They're trying to get you to look away from the law uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are convinced of better things as you look to Jesus Christ here. So there's a word here, I think, for different types of people, even here in this church. We do want you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we, we want you to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. We want you to believe on him from the heart. But we also want to see evidence of that in your life. And that evidence, of course, is going to be an imperfect evidence. But it's, is it a purposeful evidence? So some of you, you need to hear that, you, that, that because you, you are at the point where, you, you know, you just are not certain. You're, you're fearful. Um, and remember what the, the sonship delivers us from a fear of slavery. We, we, we are born as sons of a, adopted, as we saw last Sunday night. And, and so some of you need that message as well. Some of you are presuming, some you're desponding. <laughs> and we don't want either. We want a healthy look at ourselves, an examination of ourselves. but then we go to Christ and we confess, you know, Christ is our Lord and Savior. And you say, well, Pastor, how do I know if I've really believed on him, though? Do you want to believe on him? <laughs> okay? Yes, you say. Well, good. Because a non-believer doesn't really want to believe on him. Um, and, and so we, we want you to come and join us uh, in the blessing of the table as well. Let's